You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management, and today we're going to talk about data security, cybersecurity, data privacy, and what restaurants really need to know, particularly now when things are going contactless and we're worrying about things contact tracing. Um, my guest today is JC Caps, who is from Rumberger Kirk in Miami. And JC, welcome. First, I want to talk about, you know, give me a little bit of your background and, you know, how you, what Rumberger Kirk does in this area. Thanks, Barbara. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, our firm's a litigation firm. Um, we've been around for over 40 years. Uh, personally, I've been uh, practicing law for 25 years. Uh, litigation is the focus of the work that I do. About five years ago, got uh, interested in the idea of data protection and cybersecurity and went with that as a kind of a compliment to what I do and discovered that when you have a litigation background, it's actually very well suited to pair with data protection and cybersecurity because when you get into the weeds of it, um, you find that the issues of evidence, evidence preservation, um, and ultimately how a litigation matter could play out, though thankfully many times it does not happen, are, uh, are real assets. And so the area just, uh, I think, connected with me personally, and, and obviously there was a lot of pent up need a lot of questions um, in the market, and um, we just kind of went with it from there. More broadly, uh, we're just a really big litigation firm, and if you're familiar with Jim Collins, good to great, and the hedgehog philosophy that he talks about, our hedgehog philosophy is that any one of us can walk into court and try a case. What was it about data and cybersecurity that really intrigued you? Well, I think there's always the uh, the risk that you're chasing down some shiny new object. And so initially, I wanted to find out a little bit more about what it meant in terms of being able to serve our clients um, and being able to provide some complementary knowledge and consulting to the clients that we work with. And as I dug into it, I think, you know, just on a nerdy, from a nerdy standpoint, um, I, I love the depth that you can get into in this area, um, the, the learning is pretty much, the opportunity to learn is pretty much endless. The changes that occur, and we certainly, you know, not been immune from that in 2020, um, that occur in the area as it's developing still is very intriguing. And, and I think just lastly, um, you know, because legislation just tends to, to lag behind the developments as they occur in, in many areas, and, and this area is no exception to that rule, um, the notion that you can be involved early on, not necessarily, I'm not necessarily playing any role in the legislative side of things, but involved early on as that's developing um, and, and really being at a ground level to learn more about it was something that I really liked. And, and I found that to be a unique opportunity, candidly. Most of what we do is in the books and, and long decided. And there may be some changes, some, you know, Supreme Court cases that reverse direction. But, but generally, we, we know the path of the law at this point. But this area is, was and is still developing. 
there have been a number of well-known cases of cyber attacks on restaurants, um, particularly some of the chains, Applebee's, Wendy's, Chili's. Can you kind of um, give an overview of, of this area and, and what's been going on? Well, there's so much to, to it. And, um, you know, certainly in, in the period of the pandemic, uh, you know, there's been a lot of warning that we were going to see an uptick in activity um, when it comes to cyber attacks. And, and that's held true. Uh, though there was a lot ongoing in advance of it. Um, and, you know, generally, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot going on simultaneously when you're dealing with a large organization that can create an environment where, you know, uh, a bad actor, we'll call it, um, is going to be able to evade, avoid, or get around existing systems that are in place to make uh, private information secure, protect people's information, and uh, and I think in this era, um, you know, in this era, in 2020, we've seen uh, ongoing efforts, maybe increased efforts, because there's more going on remotely to attack um, and uh, see if you can penetrate a large organization and, and pull out, you know, the PII that that information has. And look, we've seen that, um, again, more recently, while it's state actors and, and state actors are a very bold frontier as well. We've seen that recently with the government as well. Um, so there, there are so many ways, in spite of ongoing efforts to counter them, to be able to hack into a system and get to information, that right now what we're seeing is really just the ongoing activity of you know, bad actors collecting information that you know, the, the good guys try to stay ahead of, but categorically is going to just continue. Are restaurants more vulnerable to cyber crimes? I, I think that, that, you know, that's an area where you want to break it down a little bit in terms of are they more vulnerable generally? I, I would say that when you look at kind of the pie chart of vulnerability, restaurants still continue to occupy a smaller percentage of the overall space. So if you look at, for example, some of the reports that categorize and quantify cyber events, restaurants continue not to necessarily occupy the broader space. It, it tends to still be heavily on the retail side. But what I will say is I think as this new environment takes root, and, and while I deplore the, tuner, the term and everything that comes with it, new normal, uh, the more that's being done remotely, uh, the, the more risk that's injected into the process. And I, I think we know that from you know everything that I've picked up over the years and, and read over the years and learned and, and talked about is the more we, we try to go to a remote environment, the more access points that we create for an intruder to find a way into a computer system to get past a firewall, um, obviously the greater the risk grows. And, and I, you know, the, the challenges are, are, are manifold here um, when we're talking about how to prevent that. Because it's not merely just making changes to your system, maybe tweaking your firewall, running the latest update, etc. Things that we all talk about and things that you know many of us try to routinely do, um, although not all organizations are perfect, but there's also an element of one, the unknown, and two, the investment. And the investment in a time when um, more than ever, uh, the restaurant industry is, is financially strapped, presents just another level of challenge. So how to figure out to manage the data that you have and um, and the financial challenges that come with trying to protect it. That's a big 
that's a big issue for the restaurant industry. So I think when you drill into it, the problems that the industry faces are, are significant ones. Obviously, 2020 has taught us about, um, you know, a lot about data and and new ways, you know, the new normal. Um, this frictionless experience that we're uh, going toward where people are wanting something that's more contactless um, and restaurants being um, needing to contact trace when they have guests in, in place. Um, all of these factors are kind of combining um, how, so how has COVID kind of affected, you know, data privacy and, um, and did, is the technology that is allowing us to have these frictionless experiences, you know, has the security kept up with that so that we can protect the data that we receive? So I, th- two points on that. I think kind of going back to what I said a moment ago, yes and no. I think that the, the, from the standpoint of has the, has the, are the products available to allow for that? Absolutely. Companies have either had those products already available or have rapidly been able to develop the beauty of you know, software and app development, come to market fairly quickly with products that will help companies uh, to be able to manage that information. And from the standpoint of security, you know, that, that really ends up being more in the user's hands. And, uh, you know, if you ever read, if you download an app and you ever read the agreement or you purchase software and you read the contract that comes with it, you'll know immediately, you know, who's really in, in whose hands really the, the, the security process falls. And that's a secondary challenge that really kind of dovetails with what I said a few minutes ago, which is being able to make that investment. So we pick up, you mentioned contact tracing, and we, we wrote an article about that fairly recently that's on our website. And we were evaluating the challenges that come with that. And, you know, one of the first challenges that comes with it is whether, you know, you look at your statute in, in the state in which you're doing business to assess whether or not the information that you're collecting in order to be able to comply with any local contract, uh, excuse me, contact tracing requirements, you know, is it applicable? Does, is that PII what you're collecting? And I think that's the starting point in the article that we wrote is, okay, well, we've got to evaluate what that obligation is, what it means. And then secondarily, the retention of that information. Where is it being retained? How is it being retained? And that kind of marries back up with more traditional concepts for data protection. If you are retaining that data in a safe space, if you're complying with generally good practices, that's all that that really at the end of the day needs to be done. And and kind of I talked briefly about my experience as a litigator and, and you know, I, that that experience of, of talking to people when you're in the context of litigation about what's reasonable when it comes to the protection of information. Um, that's the standard that's applied in, as far as I know, in every state across the country, which is you have to be reasonable in your efforts to protect data. So writing it on a, on a, a legal pad and leaving it at the front desk unattended if you had PII presumably on this pad in this you know, kind of um, extreme scenario <laughs> that I'm creating, would that be reasonable? No, that's not reasonable. However, having a, a system where you're logging the information that you need to in accordance with any local regulations and you have you know, reasonable firewall protection and you have taken reasonable measures to protect the system and limited access 
to people who need to be able to access that information and you've retained that information only for as long as you're obligated to do. That's reasonable. And, and, and from my perspective, and of course what I speak about is my perspective and opinion only, um, that's what's necessary. That's what's reasonable. And you know, I, I think where you slip where organizations could slip in this discrete point that I'm talking about is not collecting that information, not taking just minimally reasonable steps to protect it. And then I think there's also the always the, the notion that you kept the data for too long. So being proactive and making sure if you have an obligation to retain data and that obligation has a certain bounded end date, delete the information. Because retaining that information, of course, can also carry with it a host of problems if you fall prey to a bad person. Now it's, okay, you had information that was compromised, it's PII, and that PII didn't have to be in your system any longer. So how important are kind of the foundations of having data management and privacy policies in place, you know, so that these kind of worst case scenarios don't take place? To me, it's a great question, Barbara. It's the foundation of everything you do. Uh, you know, if you're you're going to start a business, if if you're going to day one set up your restaurant, your dream restaurant, whatever that would look like, you know, some people might do it in abstraction, and I'm I'm kind of personally, I'm I'm a little more like that, right? I carry a lot of stuff that I wouldn't want to or shouldn't want to carry around in my head. And sometimes I'm, I'm slow, if ever, to, you know, sort of proverbially put the pen to paper and, and map out the plan. But best practices, reasonable practices are exactly what you just hit on. And it's to map out a plan, something that we always will recommend to a client who either doesn't have a plan or maybe has an outdated plan, is to map out a plan for how you're going to protect it. And that is certainly a piece of what I referenced before in terms of reasonable practices. And it's not, this is not a promotional ad for go hire a lawyer. You certainly can to map out a plan, but you can also go to assets that are available just by searching the web and, and develop a plan that seems reasonable uh, and right for your enterprise and have that as the backbone of what you're doing. Um, and there should be multiple levels to the plan. Your general security plan is a piece of it. A disaster plan is also a piece of it because in a, in a situation where you're concerned that information that is critical to the business or is private has been compromised, that's the, to me anyways, where you really want the checklist. That's the last, last place you want to be working through your mental set of uh, steps as to how I'm going to respond to this. It's far better to have a plan, have it written in some form electronically, having a backup <laughs> for it so that it isn't in the system that you had to, that, that got compromised that you had to shut down um, is, is something too. So old school, you know, ink and paper is a value in keeping that somewhere where you can access it in the event of need and designing the plan that's right for you. And there's there's really, even though what you'd find if you go to the web is largely a lot of cookie cutter style plans, they all have the flexibility from the ones that I've seen that are good ones online to be able to draft it in a way that fits your organization, fits your restaurant, fits your plan, your program, and what you're doing. In, in regards to all of that, um, transparency is vital um, in in having the plan and in making your your employees and your guests aware of it. Um, 
So in what ways can restaurants be more transparent? Well, I think is, you know, one way to do that, and, and I think it's a two-part answer I'm going to give to your question because there's two different groups we're talking to, and I don't want to neglect the second one because we're focused very much on the customers, and but employees need to be talked about too. So I'll start with the customers. You know, the, the more we go to the touchless environment, the more um, information we can provide electronically to a guest. So as guests are, are using an app or maybe going to a website to, you know, either book depending on their intentions for how they're you know, going to uh, get food from the restaurant. If they're going to dine, they're going to dine outside. Um, or if they're going to just uh, do some form of uh, you know, pickup from the restaurant, the more information you can provide through that um, environment, through the website, um, you know, put terms, add information. That's always prudent. It is a good idea. Any well-rounded out website for, for restaurants going to include a notice statement should include a notice statement about how we go about protecting your privacy, um, something that we routinely are at least offered when you hit a website for any organization that's collecting information um, and probably also routinely never bother to read uh, for the most part until there's a problem, of course. Um, same thing with an app. If you're going to provide an app, have that option to be able to review the terms uh, and the manner in which private information is collected and protected. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to read it or that they have to read it, though you can certainly make that a requirement. Um, but at least have that information available for your, your consumers to see, read, and understand. And after that, it's, of course, their choice once they're provided with the information of whether or not they want to review it. How many times do you nowadays go to websites and get the updates about websites and how they collect information using cookies? And you know, while we get the opportunity to click yes or no, except is often the one that I see. Um, I don't know how many, truthfully, I don't know how many I've actually said, okay, this is interesting. Let me go read and see what they do or how they use cookies. Um, usually you're in a hurry and you click on it and you accept it, but the information has been made available to you. Now, I also don't want to pass over employees because really from the standpoint of an organization um, where you will have the greatest potential collection of private information is obviously going to be through through your employees. And protecting that information, well, that kind of falls into the bucket I already talked about, about good practices. And there's, there's some more to that, but, you know, the general good practices for protecting private information. But then there's the secondary piece, which we also recently wrote an article about. One of our attorneys, Justin Guido, who works on our cybersecurity team, wrote a great article, um, which was had the restaurant sector in mind, um, talking about making sure that our employees are trained, that they understand um, in terms of their accessing of systems, um, accessing of information, what they can and can't do, what information they should and shouldn't collect in the situation where they're put in a position to collect PII, and also being very cautious in terms of how they interact with the employer's environment uh, to make sure they don't introduce malicious um, uh, actors into the system. And, and one of the ones that Justin talked about extensively in the article was you know, the articles that are, provide what uh, we know as a bogus COVID-19 update or COVID-19 financial relief. And I think we've all seen those, you know, phishing expedition emails where, uh, you know, they're looking for ultimately what unfortunately is the lowest common denominator, someone who maybe has a, a bank account or a credit card account with an organization and they get duped into putting in their, uh, their username and password. And 
um, you know, that's how that account gets compromised. And then the, the truth of that, just to digress for a second, is people often recycle the same username and password all the time. And so it's not going to just be that one account that gets compromised if you do that. But in terms of training our employees, making sure, and, and we do it in our organization routinely, that people don't fall victim to bogus schemes when they're inside your environment and introduce malicious actors into the environment. So some degree of training is a very not just beneficial action you know from a checklist perspective big fan of checklists but but also from the standpoint of protecting the overall well-being of the organization and it can't stop at employees there needs to be and this is something that um seem weak adherence to it needs to be done at the c level the leadership level too if the leadership is not committed to and showing that they're going to get that information and, and train along with the employees, then it's an even harder sell. Let's talk about checklists. What would be on your checklists, um, things that restaurant owners, operators kind of need to be at their forefront of, um, you know, to avoid a cyber attack? Oh, that, that'd be a heck of a checklist, um, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I think um, at the beginning of the checklist, really just, you know, you would start with basic practices of how you're going to go about collecting that information, where that information is being kept, how routinely are firewalls being updated, how routinely are updates being run. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, I think many, uh, particularly smaller restaurants, are going to likely outsource the function of protecting computer systems, updating the information from individuals. Who are running the systems periodic check-ins uh, you know the examples unfortunate examples i've seen of organizations that don't even realize that the person who's responsible for their uh the protection of private information their, their entire cybersecurity system um are no longer in the business um you know situations like that so very very basic information renewing of licenses making sure your software is up to date um, those are just very basic early on checklist items. Some of the other big hit items I can talk to you uh, very quickly about, Barbara, would include vendors. If you're using any type of vendor, a very big deal um, to me personally, and it grows out of the litigation work that I've done for years, is making sure that if vendors are storing your information, you have a handle on where that information is. Statutes impact vendors and in impact the primary collector of information in differing ways in different states. Um, and, you know, if you don't have a fundamental understanding of that, at a minimum, you want to understand what information your vendor is collecting on your behalf, where they store that information, how it's protected, and how you're protected in terms of any contract that you have with your vendor. Um, a lot of what I, I do in this area is the negotiation of contracts. And, um, you know, if you're dealing with a really big you know, company that's engaged in the area, maybe a cloud company or a software provider that's a, you know, a very large name, those contracts are, are generally take it or leave it type contracts. You're not going to be able to redline a contract and get some better terms in there that protect the organization. But with smaller entities, there's greater flexibility. And a lot of what I do um, in, in this space, in addition to consulting about, you know, good practices from the legal standpoint, is reviewing contracts with vendors, trying to see if terms that will better protect an organization, better lay out whose responsibility it is if, if the information is in the hands of a vendor and the vendor gets compromised, 
how that's all going to play out. And that's, again, where the litigation angle kicks in, thinking about the future and if there's a problem, which is what litigators do because we've seen the problems, trying to work backwards to eliminate or reduce the risk and trying to negotiate for who's going to be responsible for that data and protection for the vendor, including additional insured protection, is very important. So that's just a brief snippet of the checklist. It's a long checklist, and and boy, you're the unlucky beneficiary of the mental one. (laughs) So where do we stand now with contact tracing? Um, And when it was put in place, was it done... Was everything done the best way for restaurants, what they, you know, what they need to know about it? I know there are still a lot of questions about, um, you know, about moving forward. Do you think that it's going to continue to be an issue, say, beyond 2021? Um, I think that's a, that's a really tough predictive question. If my knee-jerk response is I doubt it. Uh, maybe that's because I'm very bullish on 2021 being the year of the recovery. But uh, I think more pragmatically, quite possibly, yes, that will be an ongoing issue through 2021 at least and into 2022 potentially. Now, has it been optimally put in place is, is, uh, is a really challenging question to answer. No, no playbook existed for the situation that confronts us all. And I think one of the harsh lessons we learned early on is we had not really planned for a pandemic because bluntly, there's just no money in pandemics. Well, at least there wasn't any money in pandemics and, and uh, they were thought to be more unicorn type events. Uh, and so we're all dealing with the, uh, the fallout of, of that at this point in time, notwithstanding, I think, the efforts of many in the scientific community to tell us, um, you know, be on the lookout because this is very real and it's coming, whether it was COVID-19 or something else. Um, the, the local ordinances on contact tracing or regulations on contract, contact tracing, that is a, 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 a such an individualized situation that um, it, it really has to first be evaluated to see if it's even implicating PII in terms of what a particular local reg is asking you to do. And then from there, putting that burden on an organization to try to contact trace, it, it just multiple challenges exist with it um, that I think make it very, very difficult to do. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's a very difficult burden to face. Um, and it's entirely unclear what the ramifications are um, if you, you don't do uh, what's being asked of you. Um, so I think we're, we're in a... Uh, we all agree 2020 has been a, a, a suboptimal year, and we're dealing with a definitively suboptimal situation and trying to manage it when it comes to contact tracing. I, again, um, from my perspective, my, my take on it, doing the work that I've done um, for years is whatever local ordinance says, if we act reasonably and make reasonable efforts to, to collect the information that we're being act, asked to collect in order to contact trace, that is the best any organization can do. And I know it's kind of a generalized answer, but it's it's really, Barbara, not because I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to give a more specific answer. It is more because um, look, every, every statement on it, every reg on it says something a little bit different. I'm a restaurant owner, operator, and I suspect a cyber attack. What is the first thing I should do? Uh, uh, this sounds self-serving, but I would contact an attorney who specializes in the area. 
uh, unless, and I'm going to give you a big unless, unless you have uh, within the organization that you're dealing with, and this could include a vendor who is providing the services for you, you have in place um, a good plan. Um, we talked about, you were, you were great enough to mention earlier, having a good plan in place where you've covered a potential cyber attack and you have next steps laid out. Because what will happen a lot of times, particularly with smaller organizations, is they will have, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this term used, and it's become dreaded for me, the dreaded IT guy. And it's always the IT guy. I don't know why it's not the IT girl, by the way, Barbara. But I always hear it as, and maybe it is a girl, but they still say IT guy. Um, but they, they will have the dreaded IT guy, and, and the IT guy will just be really focused on just you know putting the systems back into operation. But a lot of times... Um, that is not from the standpoint of what we, we do in terms of evaluating and assessing an event and any reporting obligations that are triggered by it. That is not the first, going back to the checklist idea, it's not the first check on our checklist. Um, uh, sometimes, for example, people will shut down the system um, uh, to try to prevent any further intrusion. That is not the best way to respond a lot of the times. Um, people also immediately forget that an event and whether it's significant or otherwise, an event like this um, where a bad actor has gained access to, you know, potential access to private information is a criminal act. And as soon as you shut down and bring back up systems, you're starting to lose information. So uh, get in touch with, the very first step is get in touch with an organization, and it can certainly be a cyber organization, if you don't already have a plan in place and have a team that you have confidence in, in at the ready, get in touch with an organization that can guide you through the appropriate steps to take based on the unique situation that you're dealing with. It could just be uh, a malware event. It could be um, you know, some type of phishing scam. It could be benign or it could be more serious and, and your system could be compromised. Um, in a variety of ways, uh, but begin to get a handle on it by talking with professionals who can guide next steps. Attorneys are not the ones who should be forensically, my opinion, not the ones that should be forensically helping you to, to work through the actual issues with, with the data. Um, that you want to go to professionals in the area for. What attorneys can do, however, is they can help to overall guide the process and also for the purposes of, of evaluating and assessing, give opinion and, and offer that opinion in the context of an attorney-client relationship, which is very important. So we'll end on an outlook. Um, so you seem pretty optimistic about 2021, um, but are there any um, data issues or legislation that restaurant owners should know about um, moving forward? Yes, definitely. Um, I'd say a couple of areas jump out to me right now as being ones to be watching for and, and thinking about. The first is whether or not as an organization in some way, shape or form, for me, you're using biometrics. Biometric legislation has been hitting the books in 2020 and it's um, going to become more pervasive uh, in this year ahead. Tick generally, typically, what we'll see is one or two states will lead, um, and then the same was, was true of uh, data protection um, and the protection of PI. One or two states will kind of take the lead in that area, and then you'll see kind of a wave 
um, where other states adopt biometric security measures. We're seeing legislation in a variety of states now dealing with the collection of biometric information, which beforehand had been somewhat of a unregulated area, um, but it was foreseeable that it was going to be regulated. And we've been talking about that for a little while with that expectation that, you know, no crystal ball, it just seemed pretty obvious that that was going to come true. And it did. Um, and so that I'd say is number one. And then I think also one of my partners, Samantha Duke, wrote an article on the Facebook versus Do Good um, Supreme Court case talking about the, uh, the TCPA um, and the potential um, application if you're sending out, you know, ads, uh, you're sending out text messaging, and this is a whole other area to get into, um, whether or not those are going to fall under the, um, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 1991, and whether or not they could potentially subject organizations um, to, to fines and penalties when you're transmitting information by text. And that's an opinion that's up with the U.S. Supreme Court. As far as I know, there hasn't been an argument come down yet, but something to keep an eye on for anyone that's, you know, sending out blasts um, to, to kind of get their hands on when that decision is made, what it looks like and what the implications are for the restaurant industry. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This was great. Yes, it has been a great pleasure. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. I wish you continued success and I look forward. I am bullish about 2021 and the recovery ahead. And I look forward to, to watching it and the very favorable impact I hope to see for the restaurant industry in particular, which even in the area around us has obviously uh, been uh, been decimated just as it has been across the country. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the next step in the recovery. 